In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. So, a few days ago, we celebrated a feast in the church. Uh, does anyone know what that feast was? I'm not referring to Nativity, which was a bit more than a week ago. What was the other feast? Anyone know? So I have a big icon of it up right now. Does anyone know what that is? Circumcision. Circumcision. <clears throat> and I would venture to say that it took that long for everyone to respond because most people don't pay attention to this feast at all. And it was four days ago. It was four days ago, and we're in like a season of feasts right now. So you'd think that um, maybe there'd be some focus on this feast, but I think it's because most of us don't understand what it's really about. It seems to be more of just a remnant of Ju uh, Judaic practices. And so I wanted to go into some detail today about why this feast is a feast. Now, what's interesting is there's only one verse in the gospel that talks about this, about the circumcision, and it makes it sound like it's a complete afterthought. So it's in, it's in Luke chapter 2, verse 21, and it says, And at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And so we have plenty of other events that occur in the Gospels, uh, miracle stories that go on for full chapters, uh, and we don't consider those to be feasts, right? We don't have feasts dedicated to those. And here we have this one verse that, again, is just kind of mentioning circumcision in passing, and we make a feast out of it. Why would the church make a feast out of something that's, that seems to be so insignificant? Of course, we know about circumcision in the Old Testament. Um, this is the, the verse that attests to this covenant that God had made with man. And it's from the book of Genesis. And in it, it says, Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. So we know when there were newborn boys, and it was only boys, when there were newborn boys and they were eight days old, that's the day that they would take them to go and be circumcised, and that's when they would get their name. Uh, and so, as is commonly known, circumcision is very much associated with certain thought in in Judaic practice. So it's linked with godliness, it's linked with piety, and it's a way of showing that you're abiding by the law. And so a pure Israelite would be circumcised. Someone who's uncircumcised is impure. And so anyone outside of uh, the people of Israel, because they weren't circumcised, would be viewed as impure. And this was a very big sticking point. Clearly, it's a very painful act. Uh, and when they had instituted this in the beginning, it wasn't just for the eight-day-old boys. This was also adult males, right, that, were, that had to go through this. Uh, it's a very painful process. Um, and the way that they would do it, they would either use a knife 
or they would use a razor, or sometimes they would just sharpen a stone, and then they would use that. And there's plenty of examples of that in the Old Testament attesting to that. Uh, and so the reason for it in the Old Testament was that it served as a reminder to the Israelites to persevere in the piety of their ancestors so that they can continue the religion of their ancestors, right? This is just one of those things. If they didn't do anything else, if they barely kept any laws, this is one of those things that they, they just kept in mind so that they can preserve the religion of their ancestors and not intermarry with pagans. And the reason why they weren't supposed to be intermarrying with pagans is because regardless of how much you want to preserve yourself from saying, I will just continue believing in what I want to believe and you can believe in what you believe, uh, there's always going to be some influence that they will have on one another. That's just the, the way that marriage works. There's always going to be this sort of interpenetration and that happened a lot so that people did intermarry. They married outside of the people of of Israel, and as a result of that, a lot of the beliefs of, uh, of Judaism were, were watered down quite a bit, uh, if not altogether, just sort of put to the side. And so this was one of the ways that they could show how they were going to preserve their faith. Now, Christ's circumcision comes, obviously, on his eighth day. And what's interesting about it is not simply the fact that he went through Judaic practice, right? I think most of us, if we pick up the Gospel of Luke and we start reading through the first few chapters, again, this won't even make us bat an eye. It's so, so much in passing. Uh, but what's amazing about it is it is a true act of humility on Christ's part. And we're going to get to, hopefully, some of the depth of that. Recently, we saw Emmanuel lying as a babe in the manger and wrapped in human fashion and swaddling bands. But extolled God, extolled as God in hymns by the host of the holy angels. So it's referring to the night of nativity, right? Like just a, a week ago, we were just commemorating the fact, as in the icon there, that the Word of God, the Logos, the second person of the Holy Trinity, took flesh, and there he is in swaddling clothes. And as we see that, we still praise him as God. And so that was just a few days ago in the liturgical calendar. And today, too, we have seen him obedient to the laws of Moses, or rather, we have seen him who, as God, is the legislator subject to his own decrees. The person who gave the law has now made himself subject to the law. And this is very, very amazing, right? So God incarnate willingly subjects himself to the decrees that are set forth for man. This is a, a very high level of humility. I mean, this is, this is humility itself, right? Um, and the reason why it's humility is, is I think it's kind of lost on us unless we start thinking about other examples that we have around us, especially here in America, that can testify to a certain degree why this would be so humble. So you could see that there's anyone that's in government, for example, and I'm sure 
Most people are either very well apprised of what's happening in politics right now or hate it so much that they don't want to know anything about it because they believe everybody is corrupt, which you can take that for what it's worth. Um, but you see these people that set laws, the ones that are in government that are setting laws, and then you see that they're also the ones that are breaking them, and they're not held accountable to that at all, right? So they can do all kinds of things, and how many times have we heard people say, if I had done that, like as a normal citizen, I definitely would be in jail. But they get to do that because they seem to be above the law. They're the ones that are setting the law, and because there's a lot of money backing them, and there's a lot of prestige and power, and for some reason the system is supporting them, they get to do what it is that they want and inflame the rest of us. And if I were to do even a fraction of that, they'd probably throw me in jail for 15 years. Now, you take that and you see what it is that God himself did. God instituted laws for the benefit of man, and then he made himself subject to those laws. He said, I am going to be exactly like you. And the covenant that I'm establishing with you, I'm also going to be a part of that from the other side as well. And, and we see that... Uh, Take, for example, again, anyone that's in government right now, whenever we, whenever we hear about them, any of the people that are running for president, for example, and it's all about, well, we want to see your taxes, and everyone has to release their taxes, and we want to see how much they're paying, right? How much are you actually paying to contribute to the system that you say that you really believe in? Now, what's funny is the, the, the God that made this whole system, that made money, and established this whole thing for taxes himself, also paid taxes, right? And he didn't have to do that. And so this is St. Cyril of Alexandria, who we're basing our reflection on today. This is his third homily on the Gospel of Luke, which is all about circumcision. And this is what it is that he says. He says, For having assumed the form of a slave, as being now enrolled by reason of his human nature among those subject to the yoke, he once even paid the half-shekel to the collectors of the tribute, although by nature free, and as the son not liable to pay the tax. When therefore thou seest him keeping the law, when you see him keeping the law in doing circumcision, and being subject to circumcision, be not offended, nor place the freeborn among the slaves, but reflect rather upon the profoundness of the plan of salvation. So you see him who is above all of these things, who has established these things, subjecting himself to it as well. And these, these slight things that cause us to not even blink an eye because of their simplicity should inspire such a great amount of wonder in us. This is the level of self-emptying, what is known in Greek as kenosis. That's the word that St. Paul uses, kenosis. This is how God empties himself of all of the splendor that is due to him. Like anything that you would give to him as glory, he says, I'm going to empty myself of all of that and make myself subject to these laws. God who created the whole world and set laws to govern that world subjected himself to those laws. And that's one of the amazing things that we see in the incarnation to start with, right? He, and we say this in our hymns, he who's outside of time became subject to time. He who didn't have to suffer at all, right? God has no need of suffering. 
God doesn't even have to experience that even in the slightest. Uh, he takes on flesh, and he doesn't just take on flesh so that he can suffer, making that seem as though it's kind of like a rescue mission so that Adam fell, and now Christ has to come to rescue him, and the means of doing that is going to be through uh, pain and suffering and death. It's even more wonderful than that. It's that God, before he even created the world, before anything was here, already knew that when he created us, when he would create us, that we would fall and that he would have to do this. So it's not like he put himself into sort of a corner. He painted himself into a corner and he said, I'm going to set it up like this and this is perfect. And then they messed up and he said, well, now I have to come up with some sort of way to be able to get them back. That's not what he did. He, being God, knowing everything outside of time, knows that if he creates us, we're going to sin against him. We are going to fall. He knows it. And he says, it's worth it. It's worth it for me to create them and for the rescue of that to be that I will become part of created nature. I will take on flesh and be subject to all of this that I've set up and go through pain and suffering and anguish and abandonment and all of these kinds of feelings so that I could save all of us. That's, that's what we have. That's the kind of humility that he has. And so even something as simple as paying taxes, he did. He could have easily snapped his fingers and said, here, there is a coin. I get to pay taxes that, that easily. Watch, I can make all the coins appear so that you know, we'll pay everybody's taxes. He could have done that very easily. He could have, because he's God, had the person that was coming to collect taxes from him Forget that he had to collect taxes from him, right? He could have just said, well, you know, Jesus, you're, you're supposed to be paying taxes. And then he says, oh, I already paid them, right? Like this sort of like Jedi move, right? Uh, he could have done that. And then, and then, and it would have been fine. That would have been absolutely fine because he's God. That is the kind of power and authority that we think of when we say, when we even pay our own taxes now, we say, man, I don't really want to pay taxes. I don't want to go through that. There's so much that they take and and if I had the opportunity to not do that, how wonderful would that be, right? If I could just wave it away, that would be wonderful. If I could just find a money bag that just appears out of nowhere, that would be wonderful. And I could just give that annually and I wouldn't have to worry about it. But that's not what he does, right? He says, this is the law. This is the law that's set up in a world that I have established and I'm going to make myself subject to that law. And so he could have done the same thing with circumcision. He could have made everyone already believe, for example, that he was circumcised or be born circumcised. He could do anything, right? He could do any of that stuff. He could say, I don't want to go through pain. And as a result of me not wanting to go through pain, when they come and they circumcise me, then I can make it so that I don't feel any pain whatsoever because I'm God. So you guys can take the foreskin, no big deal. Uh, it's not, it's not going to be painful for me, or I won't bleed, or I won't do any of that stuff. And he doesn't do any of that stuff. He says, exactly the way that you go through it, exactly the kind of suffering that you have, exactly the things that we have established so that we can reinforce this kind of covenant that is between God and man, I will make myself subject to that as well.
And so we have this concept of obedience. Now, it's not obedience to just a, a, an abstract law that has no fundamental basis to it. It's not like he just sets something up and then he says, well, I'm going to be obedient to that. It says, in order that he might expiate the guilt of Adam's transgression, in order that he might be able to remove the guilt of Adam, he showed himself obedient and submissive in every respect to God the Father in our stead. For it is written that as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one, the many shall be made just. And we think of that obedience when we think of the crucifixion, right? That's the usual image that we get when we try to think of the obedience of the son to his father is the crucifixion. But beyond that, and what the church is trying to highlight for us over and over and over again, is that he's obedient to the Father every step of the way. From the beginning, I mean, in his nature, he's obviously obedient, but as, as far as in, in the flesh, once he takes on human flesh, the fact that he takes on human flesh, the fact that he's subject to the same things that we're subject to, and the same pains, and the same suffering, and the same bleeding, and all of that, those things, he says, I will be subject to that out of obedience as well. And through that obedience is able to restore us. And so we have this close association in Judaic law of the day of circumcision, which is the eighth day, with naming. And so it says, the St. Cyril again, he says, Upon the arrival, therefore, of the eighth day, on which it was customary for the circumcision in the flesh to be performed to the enactment of the law, he receives his name, even Jesus, which by interpretation signifies the salvation of the people. For then especially was he made the salvation of the people, and not of one only, but of many, or rather of every nation and of the whole world. So, through obedience in the flesh, he receives the name of the salvation of flesh. Jesus, the name Jesus, is the Aramaic form of a Hebrew name that we, that is very popular for our kids. Does anyone know what the Hebrew name is for Jesus? Joshua, right? Joshua is the name Jesus. And Joshua means God saves, God rescues. That's what Joshua means. And so that's what the name Jesus means. And so we can see something here that's amazing about this setup because it's not, there's no, there's no randomness here, right? You have to see how profound the mystery of this feast is. Through his obedience to the Father, being subject to the laws that he himself put into existence through his word, he's declared the salvation of the world from the beginning of his life on earth. From the very first moment that they have an opportunity to name him, they call him salvation. But they call him that through his being subject to suffering. He goes through suffering in the flesh, and as a result of that suffering is declared to be salvation. Now that has a very clear correlation with the crucifixion, right? Through his suffering, he's declared the salvation of the human race. And so too, in his circumcision, 
that is not just hinted at. That is the beauty of the feast. Through this obedience, he can show us that he receives a name that's higher than any other name, the name that says God saves. So from the beginning of his life, before he could even speak from a human standpoint, before he could even utter words, the name that is given to him, the word that is associated with him is God saves. And so we see this on the eighth day. We have circumcision and naming, and we have also a very important thing in Christianity with the eighth day, which is the resurrection and the commission that he gives them as well. So we know that the resurrection occurs on the eighth day, right? What we call the eighth day. There's seven days in the week, and then Sunday is the first day of the week, which doesn't play out so well in English, but you can see it in so many other languages, like in Arabic, for example. It's Al-Had, right? It's the first one. Uh, so it's the first day, but it's also the eighth day. It's the eighth day. And the eighth day, if you recall, is the same day that they have circumcision and they do naming. And that's the day that he rises from the dead. And so in Colossians, St. Paul says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. And you were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So just as through his obedience to being circumcised, the name of salvation was declared, so too through his obedience to being put to death and rising from the dead, was salvation accomplished, and the means of salvation was proclaimed through his baptism. On the eighth day, Christ rose from the dead and gave us the spiritual circumcision. This is what St. Cyril says. On the eighth day, he rose and he gave us spiritual circumcision. For he commanded the holy apostles, having gone, make ye disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is, this is what Christ communicates to them right after he, he rises from the dead. He could have come back and he said, look, I'm back. I went down to Hades. I harrowed Hades. Uh, you know, I saved, and now I'm back. He doesn't say that, right? He says things that are very, very direct towards what it is that they're supposed to do. In one account, he's saying this, go and baptize them. And in another account, he says, receive you the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. He could have said, guys, the crucifixion was really miserable. Like, if you want to know how miserable it is, I'll go into details with you. And I will tell you what it is that I saw. And I can tell you what it is from a human standpoint, from the experience of the human, what happens when you die. He doesn't say any of that. He appears to them and he says, peace be with you. Receive you the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And so it's amazing because this commission that he's giving them to baptize is our spiritual circumcision. And it's given on the eighth day. And we affirm that the spiritual circumcision takes place chiefly in the season of holy baptism when also Christ makes us partakers of the Holy Ghost. And so what's the purpose of circumcision? St. Cyril gives 
three general purposes to them, to circumcision. He says the first is that it separated the posterity of Abraham, so his, his descendants, by a sort of sign and seal and distinguished them from all other nations. Now you should know that there were plenty of other nations that were also doing circumcision at the time. The ancient Egyptians practiced circumcision as well. But they didn't do it as a means of a covenant. So they did it either for hygienic purposes, sometimes the church fathers just say they did it out of foolishness. Um, but for, for the people of God, it is done so that through the shedding of blood, there is a covenant that is established between God and his people. Through the shedding of blood, there is a covenant that's established. And I'm sure that you all know, when we talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Testament, the word testament, is covenant. So it is the agreement that is there between God and his people. The Old Covenant is the Old Testament. And that Old Covenant is set up in blood. There's blood that's shed by the cutting of the foreskin. And the New Covenant is similarly set up through blood. And that blood is the blood that is shed on the cross. That's the new covenant. And that's something that he himself testifies to during the Last Supper. And so the first reason is to separate them. The second one, it prefigured in itself the grace and efficacy of divine baptism. For as in old time, he that was circumcised was reckoned among the people of God by that seal. So also he that is baptized having formed in himself Christ the seal, is enrolled into God's adopted family. That's how we become children of God, right? It's through baptism. And that's the spiritual circumcision. And so he's saying that this is what it was that was being pointed to. What was established before for the people of Israel is now established for the entire world. And the third is this. It is the symbol of the faithful when established in grace, who cut away and mortify the tumultuous risings of carnal pleasures and passions by the sharp surgery of faith and by ascetic labors, not cutting the body, but purifying the heart and being circumcised in the spirit and not in the letter. And so what he's saying here is that true circumcision is circumcising of the heart. And it is cutting off those things that are needless for us. The passions Sin, living apart from God. These are the things that are cut off, and it's not cut away so easily. And we experience that every single day of our lives. Every time that we struggle with any of the passions that we have, that struggle is there because what we are trying to accomplish is being part of this spiritual circumcision, cutting off that part of us that is not needful to our spiritual life so that we can be with Christ. And so it's only appropriate if we're going to speak about spiritual things to put in a quote from one of the most spiritual saints of all time, one of the greatest saints, this St. Macarius the Great. I'm sure I've mentioned him once or twice before. He's great. It's in his title. That's how we know that he's great. This is what it is that he says about circumcision. 
He says, Moses, having been clothed in the flesh, was unable to enter into the heart and take away the sordid garments of darkness. The law couldn't take that away. The law just tells you what's right and wrong, but it doesn't, it doesn't get to your heart. It can't clean what's there. It can't fix what's inside of you. Circumcision in the shadow of the law shows the coming of the true circumcision of the heart. The baptism of the law is a shadow of the true things to come. For that baptism washed the body. But here a baptism of fire and the spirit purifies and washes clean the polluted mind. It's about the heart and the mind. Now, one of the things that St. Cyril discusses here as well in his homily is should we look then at circumcision, at the physical circumcision, as being something that's useless now? He says some people might be driven to think that. And the answer is yes, it is useless now. Uh, and so you would th maybe some people would start thinking to themselves, why is it then that God would establish a covenant? Why is it that he would say something? And I think that this might throw some people off when they read the book of Exodus, for example, and it speaks about this, or Genesis, rather. And it speaks about circumcision or anything that, that happens in the, in the Old Covenant. And it says, do this, and you're supposed to do this for forever, and everybody's going to be enrolled this way. Why then does God seemingly go back on his way and change what was already established? Why would that be the case? What St. Cyril says is that it, it's as though the symbol was pregnant with truth and it gave birth. So the symbol is pregnant with the truth and once it gives birth, you have no need for, for what was there before. And we see that. We see that, for example, when we take a look at the way that covenants are set up even between people. That covenant, the basis of it might be the same and the goal of it might be the same, but the way that that covenant might be different in its shape on the outside. So you could see, for example, when people get married, now for the last 6,000 years at least, uh, people wear rings when they get married. This is, not a, this is not a Christian concept, right? The ring is something that predates Christianity and predates Judaism as well. Uh, but they didn't wear these kinds of rings. They used to take plants like reeds and then they'd make little rings and they'd wear them and then obviously that wouldn't last for very long, and then you'd have to get like another one, and then eventually they started making them out of leather, and they did this for a long time. And then eventually, in the ninth century, after Christ, Christians started wearing gold rings. Now the covenant is there, right? That covenant, that sort of marriage covenant that occurs between a man and a woman, existed from before. It's not like there was no marriage before, it's not as though before Christianity, because people didn't come and stand up here and a priest came and prayed on them and clothed them in vestments and put a red ribbon around them, that somehow that, that's not marriage. But there is a difference in the way that the covenant is enacted and the meaning of the covenant as well. Whereas before, it's a secular thing. It's someone who's getting married either because they need help or because of some desire that they have or any of the, the normal reasons why people get married now. Christian marriage takes this now gold ring and says, this is, yes, it's called marriage, but it's marriage in a different way. Instead of you 
taking, you now have to sacrifice. So you see that the, the fundamental reality, the truth that's contained in marriage, that depth that's there, is something that could be seen in a shadow from before, but now is enacted in a different way. Now we have a liturgical ceremony, now we have rings, and this whole development. And so the outward form might change, but the principle holds true, and it's even deeper. And that's what it is that we find with circumcision. The outward form has changed. Now we no longer circumcise, at least for religious purposes. Right? We don't have to do that. But we do do it through baptism. And we see that that establishes us in a much more deeply spiritually rooted truth. And that's what God communicates to us. And that's why when the Feast of Circumcision comes around, we should see something tremendously profound. What we should see is this is the first opportunity, aside from the nativity, that Christ had to be able to display just how humble not only he is, he is but how humble we're supposed to be, to be subject to those things. When we end up doing something that is required of us, we think that we deserve some sort of a reward. You could see this even in marriage. If someone does the dishes, you want someone to say, like, great job, you did the dishes. Uh, but this is something that was not required of him. Not required. And he's not looking for any sort of glory. But we give him the glory because we see through that tremendous humility the road that he has established for us. So it might just appear as a random event that occurs on the eighth day that's just sort of Judaic practice actually points to a tremendous amount of humility and points to the resurrection and points to the baptism that allows us to be a part of all of that. Any questions? Wonderful. Let's stand up to pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Through the intercessions of the Holy Virgin Mary, Theotokos, St. Mary, through the prayers of St. Paul and St. Macarius the Great, hear us, O God, when we call upon you, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us a stare, daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power.